1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Scran, podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Roslyn Erskine, and on this episode, I'm joined by Callum Richardson, owner of the multi-award winning The Bay Fish and Chip Shop in Stonehaven. Callum chats about how he went from the Navy to hospitality and how his time in the armed forces influenced his business. He also talks about his passion for sustainability, which is timely given that COP26 starts soon. In fact, Callum's fish and chips will be available to delegates and world leaders, which has left me wondering what Joe Biden will think of them. At the time of the podcast, I hadn't had a chance to try Callum's fish and chips, but I went up to Stonehaven a few weeks ago and can confirm that they're absolutely delicious. Hi, Callum. How are you doing? Fine, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks.
0: As I said, you are um, the man behind the award-winning Bay Fish and Chips, but um, can you just take us right back to the start of your career? How did you get into this business? It's
1: quite a quite a strange circle I took. I always wanted to be in the Royal Navy, and I always wanted to be a chef. So I went to the careers office when I was 15 to join up because I couldn't stand school and dyslexic, and it was just getting me out of here. Went to the careers office, and they said, you're joining as an engineer. So for me, I wasn't bothered. You know, at the time, my key, key thing was I want to join the Navy. So that was it for 10 years. But in the last part, I was on a small ship. There only like 35 people. And I spent half my time in the galley. And I got the opportunity to leave. And I, I left and opened it. Well, I joined a fish and chip shop as a manager. Then an opportunity came along a couple of years later for me to buy my own place. So it was a rundown, bankrupt business. So it was a cheap, it was a gamble, but it was a cheap way to try um, using old equipment and stuff and just getting going, starting off on my own. And then I left there six years after and I built the Bay Fishing Chips, which was 15 years ago now.
0: Wow. So what was it that made you want to really join the Navy?
1: My dad was merchant navy because he, he wasn't clever enough to be in the Royal Navy, <laughs> so we've always been. Like, I was in sea cadets, and we've always been a sailing family. And I just, I just like the idea of going away around the world, seeing things. Um, and it's quite funny actually because I was in the navy. He was going around, you're trying all these different foods, but your appreciation for it back then is really not so 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 good. Yeah, you, you know, you're just thinking about. I just want something to eat because I'm going out to get drunk. Whereas, you know, it's a bit different now. Uh, I look back and some of the places I went in the Navy and I, the, some of the food I had, and I thought, God almighty, I really wasn't paying attention then. But it did, it made me understand it. But mm-hmm. travelling was a big thing for me. I wasn't going to go to college. I certainly wasn't going to go to university. That wasn't in this, on the cards because of dyslexia. So this was kind of a route to market for me. It was... I had to be hands-on. That was kind of where I was going as much as uh, I didn't purposely think that, you know, but when I look back now, it was always going to be down that route. Prime example of school, because like, I'm dyslexia, I've got high IQ, but I can't put it on paper, you know? So I was in all the good classes, but I couldn't get anywhere with it. And it wasn't until fifth year, because of my age, I couldn't leave till Christmas in fifth year. So it was like a wasted half year. I had to go to school. So I picked all the subjects that I really wanted to do, not that I felt I had to do so home economics was back in there techie things and I actually was that the best year I had at school half a year I had at school I actually enjoyed it but I chose what I wanted to do so I kind of that's kind of my ethos now where people I see so many staff coming to my shop and a bit of peer pressure and everyone wants to go to university I, and I quite like saying to people take a year out come and work for me and then just decide what you want to do pick the course you want to go on rather than just picking a course a trade because I think there's a lot of pressure on people and these are the things I learned in the navy but it's kind of it's helped me in a lot of ways when I look back now uh, how it's adapted my business mentality it's I wouldn't have been able to do what I do now if I hadn't been in the navy that's fact.
0: That wasn't going to be my next question what was it you learned in the navy that kind of you can you still sort of use today
1: It's funny really Because the Navy said to me You're not going to get any help from us Because you're dyslexic That's You've got to go in and prove yourself Or you're not coming in So I remember when I joined my first ship And they gave you this kind of little notebook And it's full of being an engineer It was all the pipes, the valves, the pumps Every system, water, fuel, everything And I looked at this book and I'm like Oh my god what is this this was like my worst nightmare so I knew I had to teach myself so I went put my hand on the pipe followed it along ah that's what that is ah so I memorized it and it meant that every time I was asked to do something I knew where everything was actually probably better than everyone else because I'd physically been to every part so it was a good way of learning so that was the start really for me but I think one of the biggest things was I had quite a lot of different bosses over the years and you soon see who gains respect the ones that are turning around and saying is everything done yeah off you go that's fine and they knew you'd be up in the middle of the night watch keeping and stuff and then other bosses would just be like no go back and do it again do it again but when you got woken up in the middle of the night to go and fix an engine you knew who you were jumping out of bed for you know it's so that kind of ethos i really took on board another part would have been because i was 16 And I was away, I would have been 17 when I was away at the Gulf War. And I was on juniors' wages, so really low wages, but doing the same job, which made it difficult because you're still living and doing the same things as all the other people that are on board with you. But they ended up they gave me like a a compassionate wage, so it made it to the same value as someone that was 18, which was a big difference to me. All of a sudden, it was from having like £400, £1,000. So it was like a huge difference. So I took that ethos into business. So hence why I do the living wage. Because for me, a 16, 17-year-old, an 18-year-old, they've all got the same thing. They all want to have a car. They all want to go out with friends. They all want to save for a deposit. But if you can't save for a deposit until you're 24, 25, it doesn't really fit well with me. I think you've got to treat folk fairly. So that's the things I learned really, and working hard and playing hard. So, that, you know, that's kind of, if you get your head down and you get on with it, and I have that ethos at work where staff, if they graft hard, you know, we we have the rewards for it, you know, and there's, I like to joke around, I'm the biggest joker going, but when it's head down and crack on, you've got to do that. Hardest thing, I would say though, was coming out, and it's quite difficult To step into civilian life and you don't realize if you chilled it by half, you're still going to be strict. I was bad for if you don't turn up shaving, you had to go away and get shaving. Craigie, I've got a beard now. You know, it's (laughs) that's that's the kind of things, you know, timekeeping, all the things that I used to have. If you weren't there five minutes before, and it was and I am strict with that kind of stuff still, but I soon realized, you need to calm down because. These guys didn't sign up to be in the Navy. <laughs> they didn't sign up to be in the forces. So that was a big thing.
0: So yeah, just to go back, so you've obviously within your family, you said you, you've got like a kind of seafaring sort of history, but was there always like a sort of love of food or was that something that came, as you say, as you travelled around the world and eventually look back and realise you should have appreciated it?
1: No, love of food would have been... From a child. I've come from a family that always it was always home cooked food. It was very rare. Actually, a treat night on a Friday night would have been absolute junk, really. You know, that would have been mum letting you have potato waffles, beans, and bacon or something, you know. So that would have been a treat night, whereas everything else was always home cooked food. But my nana, she was in the WAFs, so the Women's Air Service, and she was a chef. So that's where my love of cooking came from because I spent a lot of time with my nana, so she used to teach you the basics like making a roux, learning how to make soups and stocks and things like that. So you spent a lot of time. You wouldn't be sitting in the, in the living room watching TV. She'd have you in the kitchen stirring something, you know. But it was good because later, later on in life, you actually it wasn't a scary transition for you to do anything in your own kitchen. So the love of food was there, and also Nana used to always bring everyone together, so the whole family, you know, didn't have to be a Sunday, you know, we'd sit around the table, and we'd all eat food, talk and smile, and I used to think, God, it's quite a powerful thing, food, you know, it does bring people together, and it makes folk happy, and that's probably my moment of the love for food.
0: And was it just, so when you left the Navy, you said you went into the fish and chip shop and then you got the opportunity to buy your own place. Was it, was a conscious decision, okay, you want to get into fish and chips and that's why you went for that original job or is it just kind of what happened?
1: I was getting married and I was, my ex-wife's family were involved in fish and chips at the time. So it was my opportunity to come out because I didn't want to be in the Navy and be married because um, it's not really a married man's life. Although... If I look back, look back now, I should have stayed in the Navy. Uh, <laughs> but the, that was my opportunity to come out. But I always knew I had my, my engineering to fall back on. You know, the oil industry in Aberdeen um, was always going to be somewhere that I could go to because I was, I was qualified. But I, I had the mentality of if I was going to go offshore, I'd have been as well staying in the Navy because I was already make, career, carving a career, and I, and I loved the Navy. I didn't leave the Navy hating it. I actually left it loving it, which in some ways is quite difficult because it makes it a hard transition. Um, so I came into a family business, and I managed that, but then I got the opportunity to go and find my own my own business. So that's, that's how that kind of transpired. So it was a blank canvas, but it was a blank canvas with old equipment. So I'd gone from using modern equipment back to really old school stuff. But I'd used all my money to get open. And it was a case of once I get open and get somewhere, that's where the award thing came from. For me, it was about making a name for yourself and bringing business in. And once you can start doing that, then you can start changing the equipment, putting in new fryers and all these kind of bits of equipment. It was more a get going place.
0: And you've been in your business, as you said, for 15 years. How have you seen the fishing industry change over those 15 years?
1: You know, I've been out the Navy now, actually, since last week. I think it is 32 years. In that time, there's been a huge difference in what's happened within the industry. People would buy anything that was on market floor. The fishermen would have caught anything that was in the sea back then. That's all changed all the way, I mean, right back to... The fishermen now you know they realize that the only living they've got is to respect what's in the ocean and i think it's right through the whole of the food industry i remember a big turning point would have been they had it getting msc certification so i knew they were looking to certify that and that took like three four years to do because it takes a long time and i said to my fish supplier that i was really keen to get msc certified when it when the fishing grounds were certifi- certified. So they went for it, and I got certified straight after them. But if you ask Jamie now, he, he says, it's the best thing they've done, because if they hadn't done that then, they would, they'd have been left behind. They wouldn't have got the contracts with supermarkets or the contracts with France and stuff when they were exporting so much fish. So it actually was a good thing for them. So I remember going to them as well, and I said... I gave them an app on their phone for the Marine Conservation Society and it was fish to eat, fish to avoid. I said, look, when I want specials, I don't dict- I don't say, look, I want a stone of lemon sole. I say, get me what's good, fresh, in season and a good price in the market. I don't buy by price because I think that's the wrong thing to do. You're going to pick up the wrong stuff. I buy what's good quality and in season and sustainable. So I said to them, here's the app. You need to use this. I don't want something coming in at the shop. And at that time, cod was endangered. I said, you can't put cod down here because if I put that on, it. Says, I understand that fishermen think, well, they're allowed to catch it. But then I got caught and I says, no, I'm going to stick my ground and stick to what my beliefs are. And then the power of social media now. So, like, I'm friends with a lot of skippers that are off the boats at Peterhead, and they'll message or send a picture on social media, tagging me, Carl, and that's us just hauling some beautiful North Sea haddocks. And I, I put it onto my social media, and it's, it's good because you've got a kind of a real understanding of each other. And I think I think it's important.
0: And is that, you know, you you mentioned sustainability a bit and that is, you know, you are quite a sustainable business. What does that mean for your day-to-day and why is it so important just now?
1: I was into sustainability in my last business, but not like I am now. And if I look back to 15 years ago, I'm nowhere near what I was 15 years ago. I, I remember we were looking at packaging I didn't want polystyrene in the business, so I haven't had any polystyrene in the business 15 years. But I was looking at packaging, and I had cardboard boxes. um, I was showing vegware, and I'm like, what is that? That's real tree-hugging. But it it was, because at that time, this would have been probably 13, 14 years ago, it was that they were starting up, but the customer wouldn't have understood it. They wouldn't understand that I've put... 10 pence more on a portion because this box is costing me extra money. They wouldn't They wouldn't see that. They would just like, and whatever. And we used at that time, we were using uh, Ecovork cleaning products, the professional range, which were real good because I had in my head, I'm right in the seafront. Everything that's going down that drain is going back into that sea, which is where I'm buying my product from. So that's kind of the, big, the, the first step in the bay would have been the cleaning products. But that's changed. So then I went on to Ennio Fibres, which was water, no chemicals at all, but you've got to have a chemical there to sanitise, even though it is, it does do a better job, but by law, you've got to have a sanitizer. So we went on to Delpho Sequel. Um, so I, I've been with Delpho Sequel for years now. I use them for like the dishwasher and everything because their credentials are so high. And again, I'm friends with all the owners of all these companies because I've made that part of what I want to do. I've helped them in their business, and they've helped me and mine. But it means I really understand it and my staff really understand it. So it's about transparency. So I believe in everything that comes into the bay. So from electric, gas, products that come in, you need to know the... The route to market, how that's come to you and where it's come from, then you control how you use it and how you utilise it in your business. Then it goes out, and you've got to know how it's going out. So the packaging it's in, or if it's food waste, where it's going. How do you reduce the food waste? So these are the key things. And one of the, one of the things that really came heavy on this for me was I was in fish and chip shop of the year, and one of the questions that they were was in it was. Are you a member of the SRA? And I thought SRA, what's that? On the computer, Sustainable Restaurant Association. Huh. So I emailed them and asked what they were about. Do you have to be a restaurant to be in it? And they said no. So when I joined it, I actually became uh, one of the founder members of the of the SRA. And one of the questions, because they're the audit, are really. It's really stringent, you know. Show me proof that you monitor your electric and your gas monthly and you have targets. Show me your food waste. And I'm like, I don't have food waste. It's a takeaway. Everything goes out the door. Uh-huh. Then you open your eyes. You've got the batter scraps. You've got the potato peelings. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh. So you really start thinking about what you do. So that was a big transformation for me. That That made me look at everything. Some things are expensive. But you make so many huge savings in other areas when you've been sustainable. You know, it's like the food waste bins; they are expensive. But then you start thinking, right? I need to think about how to put less stuff in that bin rather than just paying to get it uplifted. What it means to me is just being transparent right through.
0: Yeah, and so do you find? um, I don't know how close you are to other fish and chip businesses, but do you find that you are quite sort of pioneering that sustainability, or or other businesses get kind of getting there, or or the same?
1: I know, I can't say most of the shops, but I mean, I go around and I, I work closely with a lot of the shops and I help to advise a lot of them. There's not, well, in the in SRA, I've got the highest score there is in the UK out of all fish and chip shops. Now, no one would probably come close to us at all in the scoring because, you know, it's like electric and the gas is 100% renewable energy. You know, we look at absolutely everything and I mean everything. It's harder just now because it's harder to get the ingredients that you want to use at the moment all the time, which because of COVID and Brexit, both things together. But we we for sure are pioneering what we do with sustainability, but not just in the fish and chips, but actually in hospitality. You know that's why we won a Katie's Award for my uh, sustainability. I remember as well the first time. I was up for the awards for the Sustainable Restaurant Association and they came to take a photograph of me outside the shop and it was I can't remember what was it, it was in the Times I think it was a two page spread and it was me and Raymond Blanc and it had um, the Bay fishing and Chips against Le Mans and so I went, went to the awards and there was only 24 of us because it was small then and I, Raymond wasn't there but his um, his right hand man was there and he came up and introduced himself to me and I said Sorry if I've really embarrassed you is by putting you in the paper next to the fish and chip shop. But they said, no, no, no. Other way around. It's an honour. you know. And that for me, it was like, this is where I need to be. I, I'd already won fish and chip shop of the year. So I'd kind of got to the top of where I could get within my own industry. It's all very well speaking out to your industry and helping them. But you're not going to gain much by that apart from an ego. And plus everyone in your own industry generally thinks they're better than you anyway, so there's only so many times you want to tell folks what to do. But I realised there was so much more to gain by getting in amongst the Raymond Blancs, the Tom Kitchens, all these people that, you know, everyone was looking up to. And I thought, they all do fish and chips and they all ask you questions about it. So why am I putting myself down? That's just stupid. I'm going to raise the bar with fish and chips and try and get them nestled in amongst all these other brands. And that's what I set out to do. And that was kind of my journey from there on in. And it was just to prove a point that it didn't matter what you were in. My front of house at Le Manoir has to be as polite and knowledgeable as front of house at my shop. There's no difference. Customer service is the same with me as it is in a three-star Michelin place. It doesn't matter. The customer service has still got to be the same.
0: And uh, so you talked about your career in, in uh, the navy taking you far from places, but I think your your fish and chip career has taken you quite far as well, hasn't it? You've been out to Japan and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I've I've been out to Japan now, oh, ten times. Um, working for first time is for Hanky Department Stores. So they are probably one of the richest companies in the world. Um, they own so much rail networks and everything. So they asked me to come out and do cook fish and chips they'd never had it in the British fair before 50 years they'd been doing it then the food was cooked by Savoy the year before so they said will you come and do a stand and I was like oh dear this was quite a task I said right okay they were as nervous as I was because they'd not had it they didn't know how it was going to go but they knew Japanese people love anything British anything Scottish and they love fish and chips because it's iconic you know So I said I would do it. Um, They flew me out. They said I was allowed to take someone with me, and then they changed their mind. So I went out on my own. But they didn't realise how busy I was going to be. And I just got that Navy head on. I was just grafted hard every single day. I was putting out a 1,000 portions on my own every day. A Japanese staff with me. And in the first city, they couldn't even speak uh, English. So it was kind of point and shoot and teach them. And it changed again, this changed me a lot as well, because you know, you have a day and someone phones in sick in your business here and you think, how are we going to cope? Well, I've just been to the other side of the world, cooked with strange equipment in a in a like Harrods kind of level place with no one that speaks English, you know? And you know what? We we absolutely smashed it every day. So it makes you think, right, you can do it. You just, I think tunnel vision comes into play a lot of time. Folks just get too comfy within their own environment. And again, what I noticed out there was customer service, you know. So and this girl, Shoko, that worked with me the first uh, few years, and she would be like barking at everyone. Oh, over there, over there, in line. Then she'd be, yes, please. How, you know, and I'm like gee whiz and you go into a restaurant no matter where you go and everyone shouts welcome hello and then when you leave everyone shouts goodbye and it's that british culture of being really deserved you're like whoa what's going on in here but then you think god you know what this is really clever you know it is good and i said to myself if i can come home from japan and improve my customer service It'll improve my business. And that's kind of what I decided to do. You learn so much by sitting back and watching. And going out to Japan was ideal for that. But I went there and I worked in a few different uh, cities now. So I've done Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, Kyoto, um, Nagoya, all over. And we've we done the fan zone for the World Cup Rugby. We'd create, I've created such a network out there so that it's it's like a family.
0: Quite a lot of celebrities have uh, have been up and eaten fish and chips. How does that make you feel to sort of see that, you know, you're attracting some famous faces? And it must do wonders for you on social media and things when they post or when it gets written about inevitably.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, again, so that's kind of what I aimed at one point was to nestle the brand in with other brands. It wasn't necessarily to become friends with these people or, you know, start interacting with them. That just started happening, and I, I believe in organic growth. That's a, a big thing I believe in, so not forcing something. If you force something, it's got a short-term life. No matter what it is, you know, let things happen organically. If, if they're going to happen, they're going to happen. A few things happened, really. So, like, Roy, Ondine, Roy Brett, I became good friends with him. Sturhaven so got flooded right at Christmas, and Roy messaged me and said, is there anything we can do to help support Stenhaven? And I said, well, coming to the shops, not going to do anything because a lot of customers might not know you. Well, we were busy anyway. So I didn't know how much that would help. So I said, why don't we do a charity dinner? So I, I organised a charity dinner at drumtalk Castle and they gave me the venue for free. I went to every single supplier. So this goes back to like the fishermen. I, I messaged the fishermen direct. Will you give me the fish for free? Of course we will. Contact the supplier. Will you prepare the fish for us for free. Yeah. And that's what I'd done. So everyone gave us everything for free. And then Nick Nairn came in board as well. So Roy and his team came up and Nick came up. We cooked a, a dinner for everyone. We brewed our own beer. So that that's kind of, how things came on with Roy and then Roy asked me to come back and do a charity dinner for a fisherman's mission back in Ondine so we came, I came and done that and it just kind of all snowballs I just think that's our organic growth thing and then we're like yeah, Raymond Blanc I ended up getting asked by them to cook for the SRA awards in London at Borough Market and you know for me I'm thinking this is off the scale you know I shouldn't be doing this it's just a great feeling that you've managed to achieve like you say so much more like I travel so much around the world but I've done that with fish and chips as well but fish and chips has taken me quite a long way really
0: yeah definitely and what do you think it is about fish and chips that like is so beloved by the British public do you think it's because it's traditional or like what, what do you I mean I know myself and whenever we write articles on you know the best places for fish and chips or if you know the awards that come out everybody goes nuts for it and I just think it's sustained everything
1: it's, you're exactly right it's absolutely crazy doesn't matter which newspaper or what organisation put out something special on social media holy moly it goes nuts <sighs> And it's like, everyone's tagging, And, it, you know, you look at some of the shops that get tagged, and you're like, really? <laughs> it's just a passion. The beauty is, I think it's done so well because fish and chips is unique, but it's done in so many different ways. There's not necessarily a right and wrong way because everyone has different tastes and preferences. Thin batter, thick batter, crispy chips, soy chips, small, you know, everyone's different. But fish and chips is so versatile and it, I think that's why it's managed to survive so much. You know, you've got Italians doing it, Chinese doing it, everywhere around the world. They, everyone does it, and they've all got their own take on it. But I just think it's such a ver- versatile product, and it's such an iconic symbol now. You know, it, it back in the war when it was rationed, and they decided fish and chips wouldn't be rationed, so it was. It became quite an iconic thing. And British people can be quite passionate. I think as well. It's 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 improved and growing with time. It's not stayed the way it was. So originally, batter wasn't meant for eating. Batter was a steaming vessel. So you would cook the fish in thick batter, then you would peel it back and you'd eat the fish out of it. So the fish, the batter was never originally there for eating. So it had, that's what I'm saying, it's evolved. And now the batter's, the batter's probably the biggest part of it now. You know, that's what folk buy it for, is, oh, I like that person's batter. So... That's. I think that's why it's managed to not only stay through time, but improve through time.
0: That's really interesting you say that because I remember years ago somebody on Twitter tweeted. I think it was Grace Dent saying you're not supposed to eat the batter on fish and chips, and people were going not mm-hmm. like just couldn't believe it. And but that is right. you're that was the case.
1: Yeah, that 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 is that is it was a steaming vessel, and they made it thick so that it would steam the fish. Because when you put fish into the hot oil, the fish cooks pretty quickly. It generally, it's the batter you're waiting on. So, like when I'm cooking fish, I'm always touching the batter. It's a batter and I'm looking to get crispy. I know the fish inside's going to be ready when that batter's crisp. But they used to put it in the thick batter and steam it and peel it back, so the oil's not going to penetrate all the way through that thick batter. And if it does, you're talking a minute amount. So that's that's kind of how that all came about
0: interesting every day's a school day <laughs> um do you have a favorite um chip shop item is it your classic fish and chips or do you go for something a bit different
1: i do like fish and chips i didn't as a child but it's because it's because of bones <laughs> my granny <laughs> my granny used to make breaded fish and it was what you call block fish so it was a whole fish opened up and you you've always going to be left with some bone in it and i used to always go to her house and she would cook me breaded haddock from a tea, and I hated it. So I didn't eat it at all. And then when I was at school, I was a workaholic. I had two paper rounds, a milk round, and I worked on a farm. I used to do a milk round and deliver papers in the morning before school, and then I'd go and work on a farm at night. And it was all low money, but it was all money. And that got me money hungry. So I I, I said to my mum I wanted to buy a weight bench, and she says, buy it yourself. So the only way I was going to buy it myself was by working. So that's kind of how that came. I don't think I ever bought the weight bench until probably three years ago, to be honest. <laughs> I got into this, this working thing, and I remember my old boss on the farm in Shanxi said to me, can you work an extra an extra bit tonight? Because it was harvest time. And I'm like, I've got exams in the morning. And he's going, it's okay, it's only another little hour or so, and it was like three hours. But he'd take me past this chip shop in Stonehaven, and he'd got me Fish and chips. He didn't ask me what I wanted. He just got me fish and chips, got it wrapped, took it home. I was absolutely starving because I'd been on the farm all day. I opened it up. And to be honest, it wasn't pretty. If I look back now, it was just that old school, congealed, all stuck together and wrapped. But a bit into it and I thought, oh, that's quite nice because it was big, chunky bits of fish. I thought, that's all right. And that is when I started eating fish and chips. But my love for it would have been once I started understanding it. I love fish and chips, but my go-to the work would be fresh langoustines. When we get fresh langoustines, they come in live, and we we prepare them. I just put them on the on the griddle and a little bit of salt and pepper and lemon juice, and I just don't think you can beat that. To be honest,
0: yeah. That sounds good. I definitely have to go and visit you now because I am really hungry. <laughs> this is happening at lunchtime, now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, what are your plans for the future? Which obviously is maybe a difficult question with COVID and Brexit and things. Are you? How are you getting on? And what do you see happening?
1: Yeah, I would say tough question. Um, <laughs> normally, I would normally say actually before COVID. Again, I'm a it's that organic growth thing again. I believe in going with the flow a bit. You can push things a little bit, but don't over push. Um, but since COVID, COVID has really changed things. I'm glad that I set my business up the way I did. So, like, we've got the Bay Fish and Chips at Instant Haven, which is my core hub of my business. And I've got the Bay on the Road fish and chip van that we do weddings and gigs and stuff with. I've got um, my own fish cakes and my own batter, which I supply to Compass Group and Food Buy. So, like, football stadiums, I supply all the Royal Navy with our products. So, But then then things all stopped. As soon as COVID hit, obviously all the stuff at Compass was never going to happen because you know, apart from the forces, there was nothing happening. So I'm glad I didn't put all my eggs in one basket. I think future, at the moment, I've cut the hours down in the business um, because, one, there's not the people going about to do 70 hours trade at the moment. So we're doing 36 hours. I'm busy all in 36 hours. I closed the shop at 8 o'clock instead of 10. Again, there's not the people going about, but there was in the summer, but I chose not to because, you know what, my staff are happier going home at 8 o'clock than they were at half 10, 11 o'clock. I think I'm going to stay at that. If I do open it up, it won't be past nine. I want them, to st- it's important that they have a life. I had an eye-opener, it forced me to stop and I was a workaholic, you know. I quite enjoyed being shut for six weeks there was no income coming in, which was scary, but it was the same as everyone. So you you didn't feel like you were doing something. I'm, I wasn't doing something wrong, but having no emails, no phone calls, and all of a sudden, it was quite nice. You know, it just forced to stop. So it makes you look at what's going to happen in the future a little bit different. You'd be a bit more tentative to go full throttle. I'd I don't want it to take over my life. I think we need to look after the staff. I've always been a great believer in looking after them. I've not been a great one for expansion, like more shops. I used to think I wanted them, but too many folk in my industry would say it becomes about the money and not the product. You know, you, you've you got to hit margins, and that would not sit easy with me. But I, I think I'm going to keep pushing on with my sustainability, keep pushing on, trying to push good healthy well-prepared food and I want to keep doing my collaborations that I do with other other chefs and other people because I think anything that you do with other people that highlights the industry I'm not just about pushing for myself I like to push the industry forward so I think the only way people can have a bright future is by working together
0: So that's a a good point to um, sort of wrap up. Apart from the last part of the podcast is a quick fire round about food, if you don't mind, five questions. So if you tell me the first thing that comes into your head. um, So comfort food for me
1: is? Comfort food for me would be pizza.
0: Whenever I'm hungry, I think of?
1: Whenever I'm hungry. It's funny because I used to to be eat anything and I, I became quite into fitness. Because I believe a sharper mind gave me better business. So I tend to grab fruit now.
0: Nice. Uh, my favourite childhood dessert is?
1: Rice pudding.
0: My food heaven is?
1: Fish and chips.
0: And my food hell is? Mushrooms. Nice. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks to Callum for being my guest and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, view and subscribe. Scrant is a logical podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Roslyn Derskin, and co-produced, edited, and mixed by Kelly Crichton.